0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, as you're turning in your Bibles to John chapter 18, express what a privilege it is to be here this morning with you all. It was 40 years ago this afternoon at the old First Presbyterian Church, 840 North Main Street, where I stood at the front of the church, heart pounding out of my chest, as Carol marched in, and my dad, and Roy, and my brother David uh, tied the knot and tied it really tight, because it's 40 years later, and, uh, and we are together and enjoying life more than we ever have. During that time, at First Pres, I was assistant pastor to associate pastor with Roy. We split the pastoral duties down the middle, and I also had special emphasis with youth, And Carol and I discovered early on we had division of labor. I taught, I played guitar and led the singing. Carol dealt with all the girl drama in the youth group. It was a good division of labor. Now join with me now as we look, beginning with verse 1, and let's read through the end of verse 11 of John chapter 18. Hear now the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let me invite you to keep your Bibles open before you. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower flower fades, but the word of our God shall endure forever. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray, God, that you would prepare us this day to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as we consider these words before us. We ask that your spirit and your word together will work in our hearts and lives to open our eyes, to see wondrous things out of your word, and to transform our lives through your Word and Spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The church where I grew up, God graciously gave us a deacon in the church whose favorite pastimes were going fishing and working in his garden. A man once told my daddy, who was pastor of the church where I grew up, you know, preacher, I love to fish, but I learn the most when I'm working in my garden. He said, for me... The garden's kind of like going to school. In the garden, I learn a, a bunch of lessons about planning, about pulling weeds, diligence, hard work, attention to detail, patience. And then he patted his tummy, and I said, I also enjoy the payoff from my labors. Then this man said something to my father I'll never forget. He said this, Sometimes, preacher, when I'm in my garden... I feel close to God. You know, the man may have been onto something. After all, if you go all the way back to Genesis 2, there's a word play between the Hebrew words for Adam and the ground or soil. In other words, we have dna into us as descendants of Adam a history of tending a garden. Of course, we live in a world that is post-Genesis 3 and pre-Revelation 21, and because of the fall, we all have to wrestle with weeds in our gardens, both literal and figuratively speaking. Life is difficult in a fallen world. Notice, however, here in John 18, in the garden of Gethsemane, something happens that begins a reversal of the fall that happened back in Genesis 2 or in Genesis 3. Notice as we work our way through this text this morning, uh, John wants us to participate in the Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Before that, let's shift into student mode as we learn together three lessons God's Word teaches us right here in this night course at Gardner University. And the first lesson we learn in the garden is this. There's a lesson here about the irony of Jesus' arrest. The irony of Jesus' arrest. Now, we all recognize irony when we see it. You know, a fire station burns down. Uh, A librarian has an overdue book. A driving instructor runs a red light. There's this historic tobacco factory located in Durham, North Carolina, the American Tobacco Campus, that advertises itself as a smoke-free facility. In Finding Nemo, the clownfish is unfunny, and the pelican is best friends with a fish. Irony. Well, here in John 18, we see irony. There's irony as... Caiaphas, the high priest, colluding with the Roman soldiers, the temple guards, they arrest Jesus, and they say, mission accomplished. But the irony here is this. Just whose mission were these men accomplishing? The mission of the enemies of Jesus ended in failure. God's mission for Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, to save people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and nation— That mission continues to be a rousing success. Jesus can say, mission accomplished. There's irony here in this narrative of men living in the darkness of unbelief, raiding the garden at night with lanterns and torches to arrest Jesus, who is the light of the world. There's irony with soldiers and guards entering the garden with weapons, you know, just in case Jesus tries to resist arrest. We know all the time if Jesus had chose to resist arrest, these big-shot soldiers would have been about as successful arresting Jesus as you and I would be successful going 15 rounds with Mike Tyson in his prime. The irony is all these men living in the darkness of their Unbelief were only fooling themselves. They they're thinking, We're calling the shots. We'll see in just a minute. No. Our Lord is calling the shots. The script's been written. These enemies of Jesus, they're basically bit players in a garden drama. A drama, the script of which is written with the permanent ink of God's sovereignty. Now, for those of us who follow Jesus today, let's not miss the irony in our own times of progressives thinking they can use the weapons of state-enforced laws or a twisted view of the Second Amendment or a cancel culture mob, big-shot corporations to somehow try to shut down the proclamation of the gospel. And let's not miss the irony of lawmakers imagining they can somehow snuff out the blazing light of the gospel with some kind of enlightened legislation. Or the irony of educators thinking they can extinguish creationism, they can redact Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth with somehow the light of scientific reason. And, of course, we all must bottle of the science. Friends, the biggest irony here we dare not miss is this. Historically, currently, whenever, wherever people refuse to see the light of the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ, according to Romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 23, all we're seeing with people who oppose Jesus is is a flashing red engine light on the dashboards of their lives indicating fallen, foolish thinking. As we approach the Lord's table today, let's pray that God would shine the light of the gospel into the dark hearts of people who oppose Jesus. And who opposes Jesus? He leaves no doubt about it. Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not for me is against me. How clear can he be? And then let us offer up this morning humble praise to God, because by God's grace alone and for no other reason, God has been pleased to shine the light of his grace and his glory in Christ into our hearts. That's why we can participate. In this sacrament. So it's the irony of Jesus' arrest. That's the first lesson. The second lesson we learn in this night course in Garden University is this. Secondly, there's a lesson here about the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. The irony of Jesus' arrest. Secondly, the power of Jesus. The late Australian New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, spent a lifetime dedicated to studying the gospel of John. And he observes here in, in John 18, he says, in this chapter, and I'm quoting, the point John emphasizes is this, Jesus is no victim. Jesus is not overcome by wicked men stronger than he. In fact, in this garden drama, Jesus is the supreme master Of everything going on. In this John 18 narrative, we read here Judas the betrayer leading a detachment of somewhere between 300 to 600 soldiers, plus the temple police, into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Look at verse 3 again. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers and chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and weapons. And then it says here, then Jesus begins to freak out and he runs and he hides. Right? No. Notice what he does. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that will happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now I want you to notice in this response, when Jesus says, I am he, there's no he in the original Greek. See what Jesus is saying to the soldiers, to Judas, to everyone that can hear, he's saying this. Who are you? Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. It's the exact claim Jesus makes in John 8, 54, when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Friends, it's the same words the Lord Yahweh uses back in Exodus three fourteen when he identifies himself to Moses. Jesus is telling these mighty soldiers, he's telling these capital policemen, I am the Lord God. Friends, what Jesus is doing, he's giving us a declaration of deity. And the response of Rome and Israel's finest, well, notice a dramatic picture here. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's a very dramatic picture. They, they went backwards, staggering, stumbling, going into reverse as if some mighty force is, is driving them back. The Greek pictures here, men falling so hard on the ground with such force that they appear to be lying Dead. Please don't speed past verses 5 and 6 when you read this. All Jesus has to do is simply speak. And when he does, he unleashes a big blast of God's power, blowing these men back with such force that they stagger, wobble, hit the ground with a loud thud. Before the living and true God, these Soldiers with all their might and all their power, these soldiers are undone. The message, it's clear, it's obvious, it's super evident. No force on the face of this earth. No army armed with lethal weapons and SEAL teams and fighter jets and smart bombs with nuclear warheads. No government, nothing on the face of this earth possesses enough power to stand up to the supernatural power of Jesus. All Jesus has to do here is speak, and every power deluded enough to think they can overcome Jesus. Every earthly power is pushed back, just staggering and stumbling, falling like a sandcastle, pounded by a wave. And here Jesus is also giving us a brief preview of what's going to happen one day when at the name of Jesus, just the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Now stop for just a moment and think. At this point in time, Jesus could have walked right through these men. He just turned these men from being intimidating soldiers into the keystone cops. These enemies of Jesus lying helpless on the ground. Jesus could have walked right out of the garden. Jesus could have gone on living his life teaching and preaching and healing and fishing and going to lots of dinner parties and debating with religious leaders. By virtue of being God, we know now no one could lay a glove on Jesus. Yes, Jesus could have walked out of the garden of Gethsemane. Let that settle with you for just a moment. But if Jesus is not arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, dead, and buried, if those things don't happen, we who profess Jesus this morning would have no hope. If Jesus walks out of that garden... We'd be lost in our sins, heading headlong into eternal darkness and to the unspeakable agony of separation from God. And so, praise God, there's one more lesson to learn here in Garden University. We've seen the irony of Jesus' arrest. We've also seen the power of the Jesus they arrested. All he had to do is speak, and these men are done. But notice the third lesson is this. There's a lesson here about the purpose of Jesus. The purpose of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That reveals to us the purpose of Jesus' arrest in the garden. But before we get there... I want to mention something about the setting, the mood of this arrest. Because there's something that sort of frames the mission of Jesus. In verse 1, it talks about the Kidron Valley. The word Kidron means dark, shady. Because when blood cascaded down the back of the temple, from the hundreds of sacrifices, animal sacrifices being slaughtered during Passover... Blood stained the water in the stream running through the Kidron Valley. So, as the disciples cross this stream, there's blood in the air. They smell blood, they smell death. In the name of the garden where Jesus is arrested, we find out in other chapters, is the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil press. You see, Jesus is going to voluntarily be crushed like an olive. In the Bible, olive oil is seen as a a blessing flowing from the crushing of olives. Are you starting to get the picture? Blood, crushing, blessing. Well, any question about why Jesus came to this earth, any question about Jesus' purpose, he answers himself in verse 11 directly. See, this cup that Jesus volunteers to drink is the cup of God's infinitely fierce wrath against sin. In his suffering and death, Jesus takes this cup of God's wrath against sin, he puts it to his lips, and he drinks down every drop of the cup of God's wrath. But the question for us is this, for whom? For whom did he drink this cup of God's wrath until it was dry? It wasn't for him. Jesus had no sin. You see, the Gospels remind us over and over and over again that in submission to God the Father's eternal plan, Jesus drank down the cup of God's judgment for you, for me, for everyone in this room who professes Jesus as Savior and Lord. I love this quote from the late Jerry Bridges. One of my favorite authors in the book, The Gospel for Life. Listen to this quote. Christ exhausted the cup of God's wrath. Think about that. Christ exhausted the cup of God's wrath. For those trusting in Christ, I hope that's you this morning, for those trusting in Christ, there is nothing more in that cup. In that good news? There's nothing more in that cup. Bridges concludes, The cup of God's wrath is empty because Christ himself drank all of it for his people. Today, this morning, because of what Jesus has done for you, Jesus invites you to receive another cup. It's not the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of God's love and mercy and blessing and grace cup of God's forgiveness. So friends, I invite you in a few moments to drink, to drink deeply the cup of God's blessing, blessing you will receive today, blessing received because of the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you volunteered to die for your people. That your body was broken by our sin. That your son drank every drop from the cup of your wrath against sin. Lord, we thank you that we can drink this morning from the cup of your love and mercy and grace and forgiveness because of the work of Jesus Christ. Help us to receive this sacrament with humility, with thanksgiving, and with great joy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.